0: Welcome to They Came From Outer Space, a radio program where we talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film and how it relates to their own work and today's wild world. I'm filmmaker Cameron Kitt, also known on WIR as DJ Lilas, and you're tuned into WIR-LP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. I'm here today on my 35th episode with Nick Rooney and George Martins to discuss the 2014 sci-fi thriller X Machina
1: i want to talk to you about the greatest scientific event in the history of man hello hi
2: i've never met anyone new before have you
1: none like you
2: she's incredible (laughs) the challenge is to show you that she's a robot and then see if you still feel she has consciousness how you doing hey what's going on
0: guys so you're hanging out together to record this
1: Mm -hmm. yeah where Are you socially dis?
0: It? Are you socially distanced?
1: Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, <laughs> Sure. I don't, I don't really like standing too close to George anyway. Yeah. Nick <laughs> kind of smells, so we're we're six um, feet apart.
0: That's um, that's a good way to justify not um, like bathing. So I'm like, you don't have to smell me anyway. I'm far enough away. I don't mm-hmm. have to keep up with it. So I'm going to introduce both of you. If you don't, if you have, if you don't recognize these names. Nick Rooney is a gaffer, musician, film buff, who's also, I'm not going to lie, pretty buff himself, working in New York. He studied at Bergen Community College and at one point lived in New Orleans.
2: I sure did.
0: uh, Yeah, um, I've always wanted to go. I've never never been there.
2: It's a fine town. Fine town. My favorite.
0: Well, um, speaking of fine... Things. George R. R. Martin's the second is a Jersey-based director whose recent short *Juniper* won Best Sci-Fi Film at the Coney Island Film Festival. And who, oh boy, what a twist! Do you remember that oh, episode yeah. on *Robot Chicken* where he's like, "What a twist!"
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: What a twist! That That's shit. how I felt at the end of your short. Uh, George earned a BFA in film production at Montclair State University. He grew up uh, learning American Sign Language as his primary language, which is super interesting. And um, beyond directing, he also does cinematography, editing, and UX design. So man of many traits.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what
0: they say. Guys, thank you for being here. Um, before I get into the movie and tell a little bit about this, can I just ask, how did you two meet?
2: Oh, I um, I think I actually worked on a movie that George was working on when he was in college. And I just... Oh, I don't even think I was working on the movie. I think I was drinking on set of the movie. Mm-hmm. I don't drink on set. Please hire me. <laughs> but but, uh, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. but uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how it happened. Yeah, it was at Montclair State, and I ended up living with uh, Dear George here for
1: three years. Yeah. A while later. In an eight-person hostel in Jersey yeah. City.
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. How fun. What was the theme? What was the, I guess genre of the film that you guys met on
1: oh was that harry's movie it was harry's movie uh it was i guess it was sort of a sci-fi uh some chick if i remember correctly it was so long ago it's like some chick ate a diamond that this guy needed and he had to kill her to get the diamond out of her stomach yeah. or something like that well, i don't I don't really remember. I
2: remember that I ended up being dragged into, like, B in the movie, and I never got credited. Really? I'm still a little mad. I mean, I remember they
1: lit that dumpster on fire just yeah. to do it, and that was scary. Don't talk to me about but yeah, like that. Yeah, we George. should talk about
2: that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a good time. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm glad y'all are still friends, and um, Nick, I'm really glad that you, when I mentioned that I'm a sci-fi film buff, that you, I'm sure, immediately thought of George. And we're Mm -hmm. very glad that y'all are here. So we're here to talk about Ex Machina, which if you haven't seen, the show today will be rampant with wild spoilers. So you should probably go watch it and come back to this podcast. You can find it on Spotify or on Mixcloud and soon to be on Apple um, by typing in the the words, they came from outer space. But I find that a little bit of light spoilage actually increases your enjoyment. There's actually studies that show this. So you can listen before you watch, and I hope you do. Um, So I'm going to do a quick overview of the film. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Released in 2014 by Universal and Film4 and shot in Norway and at Pinewood Studios in London, Ex Machina is a sci-fi thriller set, quote, 10 minutes from now, written, directed by Alex Garland, who you may know as the writer from 28 Days Later, Sunshine, Dread, and more recently, the writer and director of Annihilation. So many good things have come from this very smart man. Uh, the story of Ex Machina is, in the director's words, the story of a robot who becomes a girl. We follow Caleb, played by Donald Gleason, a young, lonely coder who wins a week at his employer's secretive estate. His boss, Nathan, played by Oscar Isaac, is a Google co founder stand-in, basically. A terrifying beast, which is how Oscar Isaac describes the character, who gets blind drunk every night. We find that Caleb is not actually there for a contest, but to be a test administrator for Nathan's robot AI, a lovely-faced automaton named Ava. Caleb quickly falls for her, and what results is a beautiful metaphor for man's inability to control his own machine. You shouldn't trust Nathan. You shouldn't trust anything he said. Is it strange to have made something that hates you?
2: What were you doing with Ava?
1: sounds about yeah, that it.
0: wraps it up yeah that's it that's it Ooh, it's a metaphor people i i watched watching it this second time around i was shocked by how much it is a metaphor yeah. and if it's well done you know you just enjoy the story the first time you're just pulled into the story um mm-hmm. so so um nick this was your first time ever seeing this movie and i think you said uh-huh. you watched it twice correct
2: i did watch it twice and i think I did watch it twice, and I think that the second time was even better than the first time. And the first time was great. So, I I really like this movie. You know, it's... Uh,
0: yeah, give me an overview. What, do you, what did you like about it?
2: I, I really liked that... Uh, well, I kind of like the idea of... Um, uh, I feel like Ava kind of mirrors Nathan in that they both control Caleb into into acting a certain way you know but there's like opposite end of of the spectrum and nathan is sort of this ultra chauvinist that um you know i i feel like some of that rubs off on ava but you don't really get to see it uh, the first time you watch the movie around but the second time you'd watch it you actually
1: kind of get to see some of those little things that they threw in there yeah even with caleb cutting his arm um in that one scene that rough really going back to metaphors like shows that like he was getting to the point where he thought he was a robot and kind of losing his sanity in that place
0: yes yeah, mm-hmm. she got under his skin yeah and when you i think i watched an interview with him where he he was very intentional to show you his scars early and then tell you about the car crash later because your first thought is that maybe he's a robot yeah, and i was like yeah. oh i'm too dumb to have even thought that i was like i didn't even notice the first time I was like, oh, yeah, I just thought he had scars. (laughs) But, you know, for the intelligent viewer, he was throwing in a lot of misdirection red herrings, which I really like, you
2: know. Yeah, Yeah, and that was sort of an opportunity to feel like, oh, Ava might actually, you know, care about him. She feels bad for him, you know, but it doesn't actually turn out that way, does it? No. No. You know, she gets so under his skin that, like, she meets him five times and convinces Caleb to go AWOL on not only his boss, but, like... You know probably humanity too you know
0: mm-hmm.
2: i think that's a lot and
0: that's you feel lot. protective of her too like you because you are caleb right like he's so donald gleason is so good at being this kind of every man he had a very rough time he had a, i watched an interview with uh, alex garland where he's like this is a very tricky part to play because he's very passive as the main character you know he's mm-hmm. kind of back footed yeah. and whereas nathan is like very front-footed those are his words but like you you kind of fall for it right like part of the fact that there's the meme that says like good for her at the end the fact that you're rooting for her at the end and then watch it the second time and you're like no 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 <laughs> no no, no. Uh, yeah don't let her out
2: yeah i mean i i personally didn't like caleb's character very much because uh, i just felt like he was sort of condescending like he got he finally got like a little bit of confidence that was like forced fed into him by nathan and then uh, he used it to be condescending to a ultra-smart android, you know, who just kind of threw it back at him.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Did you not feel that way?
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't – I felt like he did a good job of acting because I also agree because I wasn't as sad as I probably should have been when he gets, spoiler alert, locked in the room at the end, right? It's mm-hmm. like, oh, well, you deserve this, you know? Like, I think that's a good job is to make him an unacceptable fall guy while still being relatable but yeah i mean he, you like he's so good just even the opening scenes how awkward he is right like i felt like i i could feel it emanating awkwardness that like he he is a character he inhabited that programmer do you guys know any people who are coders or engineers or software engineers? yeah
1: my brother's a, a coder um mm-hmm. rockstar and um yeah he, he's a little bit more on the quiet side uh mm-hmm. and just like even when caleb gets off the helicopter in the beginning it just establishes just like how lost he is in the whole world. Like he's just like in the middle of the mountains. And he's like, what in the world is going on? Um, so I, I thought he was a great actor. Uh, his performance is great. And I, I felt for him a little bit, but not as much as I think I should have. I was kind of like, you know, yeah. rooting for the, the robot the whole time. Yeah, What a nerd. Uh, yeah. It's like, oh, you're, you're a dope and you <laughs> fell for this.
0: Well, there's a great scene where you think he's finally outsmarted Nathan and then Nathan replays the tape back to him where he's like, "Oh my gosh, you're no like to to just remind him that he's like you're nowhere near my level." I think Nathan is so terrifying as a character this like the subtle intelligence yeah. and like the terrifying nature of his intelligence because it, basically every scene he's ripping apart uh, like a punching bag.
1: Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's
0: like always just like aggressively doing like ma- macho man like crunches. <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> and he has a really thick beard which is yeah. like very manly I guess yeah, oh, yeah Oscar Isaac
0: just killed that part like he yeah. he's yeah. so good because you trust that he is intelligent enough but like and he's so de- and he's so degrading but you mentioned that he has this like insane amount of toxic masculinity and to me the grossest thing about his character is just the women that he designed right like when you see yeah. these women in the closets it's just like this feeling of ickiness crawls over you about like how gross it is that he creates these basically like fembots you know like yeah.
2: Even the because part of
1: course he with does. the, um, you know, when he's talking about uh, that he designed Ava uh, off of the porn profile, mm-hmm. of her, you know, which was like a really weird scene mm-hmm. where I was just like, that is really freaky and just gross. But yeah. I kind of
0: love that because it's calling out, um, gosh, what is her name? Uh, her Alicia Vikander's like unnatural beauty. Like I was like, thank you for calling that out because like she's a little too pretty. Do you know what I mean? Like she's so beautiful. Oh yeah. She's it's like gorgeous. a little, it's like unsettling how beautiful she is. And I mm-hmm. thought that was kind of like a good call out of like she's been designed, right? He picked yeah. somebody who looks like Galadriel basically. Um, so talking about Donald Donald Gleason, which is spelled D-O-M-H-N-A-L-L. Um, he's British, he did an American accent. Okay. I thought it was really interesting that he was a clone in his Black Mirror episode, Be Right Back. And oh. I just wondered if you know if there was a connection for you, George. About that character and then that actor in the in those two episodes, and like the the input and the impact that those two things had on your work with Juniper. Yeah,
1: so it's interesting because every time someone sees Juniper, they say it's like that Black Mirror episode, which right. I did not see actually before making <gasps> Juniper. So um, yeah, what? very interesting. <laughs> the I guess parallels between this mysterious Black Mirror episode and my movie, but I'm kind of glad that I didn't because I think it would have kind of. Put it on a track that might have not been as original yeah but, uh, i
0: mean it's like i'm sure i'm sure it gets annoying hearing people bring this up but they're so different form in terms of media so juniper and be right back are talking about extremely different things in a lot of ways um even though they have very similar setups right it just goes to show how different i, I have you so you did watch you have seen it now right
1: no no still haven't seen it okay
0: well if you if it makes you feel any better they're discussing different things. But would you mind giving the audience just kind of a little bit of a synopsis or yeah, know, are we allowed absolutely. to spoil anything? Okay. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. I won't spoil the end, but um, Juniper is pretty much about a farmer whose wife is dying. Um, and he, you know, leaves the hospital after kind of saying his last goodbye. And a woman shows up from Letta Genetics who presents him with the option to clone um, his wife. And pretty much he struggles with this decision, um, and he ends up deciding to clone her. And she gets delivered, and he meets her, and then his father-in-law shows up, and um, he has to hide her, and uh, pretty much you find out that the father-in-law is not about having his daughter cloned, and tries to kill the clone, Juniper. And um, yeah, uh, some scuffling happens some people get killed and uh you find out some interesting things in the end about the main character
0: it's so interesting because i just the fact that donald gleason played a clone later i wonder if there must was like some subconscious thing about his performance in this movie that was emanating that he was kind of mimicking ava right he's like yeah maybe that had some kind of influence on you so funny um yeah, I thought he did a great job uh, being the milquetoast every man. But what was really interesting to me was um, reading about how Alex Garland got started on this. So he had been, he's he been a successful Hollywood writer for many years. He's a very smart guy. And when interviewed, he said he's been thinking about this for a long time. He has a couple friends who are something like industry leaders in certain areas of artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. So that helps, right? Um, but he had been working on it when he wrote Dread. He said he had the idea to just kind of pop into his mind. And so he'd been sitting on it and he wrote this script and everyone who has read it said that they would read it in a full hour. I actually went and read the script and I will say it is pretty darn good. I think he won an Oscar for the screenwriting. I need to double check um, for the script for that. But George, how did Juniper get started for you?
1: Um, So it was a very long story. So pretty much... um... Juniper was written by Chris Picone, and the idea was kind of written by my roommate Josh, or me and Nick's roommate. Um, and they were trying to make it for years. Certain things would fall through, and they always wanted to shoot it at my farm, the uh, the movie shot at my family's farm in upstate New York. Uh-huh. So I was just going to come on, on as a gaffer um, and just kind of work the crew. But as things started to fall apart, I approached them and I said, listen, I like been with you guys this whole time and I really love the story and I love sci-fi and you know I'm not a super experienced director but I'd love to take a crack at it and they were like you know what go for it so um sort of how it came to be and then you know I kind of worked with Chris to adapt it into a shorter you know more manageable movie that we could actually afford and um yeah it's sort of how it came to be.
0: Oh, that one's so long that's good
1: <laughs> nick,
0: <laughs> nick have you been to this farm
1: i've never been to his
2: farm george doesn't like me that much
0: man so, okay you know, so i actually weird. was in the cat skills yesterday and just getting closer to upstate new york i feel like the setting i'll talk about that more in a second I, I don't want to come to that but i did look it up he was nominated for best screenplay but they had one for best visual effects in 2016.
2: Oh, what uh, they yeah, ask her I, for, I, I and
0: they beat be out Fury Road and like 15 other $150 million budget things. So Mm -hmm. I think it's just cool how many parallels there are with your short about working with budget and setting to create something that looks very uh, high concept. Right. And they had, I'm sure you guys know this, but like they had a tremendous amount of restrictions with this budget to make this film as crisp as it is. Really? I couldn't,
2: I couldn't tell.
1: They're I know. Really yeah. I mean, the location is so beautiful I in that movie. Uh, it, it's stunning. I like wonder if they built a lot of the sets or yeah. did they actually find a location? So
0: so most of it is shot on location at the Juvet Landscape Hotel in Valdal, Norway. Um, oh, it's a hotel. So they yeah, so he, he oh, said they knew that a lot of the film because they didn't have all this money, a lot of the film was going to come down to the landscape. So they did a ton of location scouting, and of course, Norway boom but the hotel Mm -hmm. looks pretty good like most of it is pretty much the hotel and then i think they built a few sets but you know it's so interesting to me like the especially i have a lot of respect for the set decorator her name is michelle day she also worked on a lot of his stuff she worked on annihilation Slumdog Mm dog millionaire 20 days later but you know when you have a small budget and you need to make a billionaire's house something that she said in an interview is like no billionaire would let us in their house so like we didn't know what it even looks like and I felt like I felt like the setting the set was a character to me like it, oh, definitely mm-hmm. even so, in his
1: room like with the no windows
0: was... I know I noticed that the second time I was like no windows
1: yeah yeah
2: I could definitely picture any of our top five evil tech billionaires living in that house you know, so definitely. true Literally.
0: yes There's something about it, like the ownership of that very dramatic landscape, and just the calmness with which Oscar Isaac saunters around his waterfalls was very intimidating. Yeah, Yeah. so
2: over the top. He's just, oh, we've been flying over his estate for the past two hours. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah. that was a great way to start the movie. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. They start the movie hard and fast in a way that I was taking notes on. I was like, okay, twelve minutes in, we've already met Ava. Like, no playing around. Let's get going. I really appreciated that. But going back to setting. Nick, what would you say is the weirdest location you've been on for a set, or maybe the swankiest?
2: The swankiest or the weirdest place I've ever been. Didn't on Didn't you set. Um,
1: do that thing in that recording studio, and you are like, oh, "I don't want to touch"?
2: Oh my god! Oh, that was that was so cool. I actually, uh, yeah, I did a thing at um, Electric Ladies Studio. It was probably my like my favorite location job ever. I've been I've been there more than once, and uh, you know. Just the fact that like, oh, Jimi Hendrix helped paint these walls, you know, like right before he died, you know, and like all these. And like, oh, that's Stevie Wonder's piano over there. Oh, this is Bob Dylan's chord. Like everything is plugged in and like you could everything is on all the time in that studio. So you just like sit down and play anything. But like, I don't want to.
1: Yeah, you don't want to like touch anything.
2: That place is like church (laughs) to me, you know? Yeah. So actually I was a... I was on set with this gaffer and I was carrying like this really long thing and I asked him to help me and uh he he tried a little bit, but you know, he was just like, he picked up this pipe and it was immediately like, bang, bang, bang against a bunch of walls. And I was like, no,
0: you don't, oh my God, please. Desecrating the church. Yeah, yeah, yeah really. But, music uh, church.
2: Wow. You know, that, that place... Yeah, that's probably my favorite location I've ever been at before.
0: That's so cool. Yeah.
2: Um I think the art factory in Newark is my other favorite. Cause, cause there's yeah. I don't know if you've ever been there before. Or oh, not art in Newark, Patterson. Art Factory in Patterson. Oh yeah, it's in Patterson. My bad. Uh all them New Jersey studio places, you know. Um there's like thirty locations in there that are all just like like awe-inspiring, the really old—it's a really old building, steel mill, you know, or a uh, silk mill rather, you know. But uh, I think that's probably my favorite, my other favorite. How
0: about that's you, so. George? Yeah, go ahead, George.
1: Um, well, it's interesting because in Juniper, you, the hospital scene. So we went to Parley Studios in Jersey City, and we got a small stage there to build out like a hospital room. I really wanted a futuristic effect for that because you know, the the contrast between him living on this run-down farm, but he's in the future. So um, mm-hmm. it's like the one futuristic element I really needed to nail. And we got there and we were looking at the studio and we're like, well, this doesn't look futuristic at all. Like, how are we going to build something that looks kind of futuristic? Like there's no windows, there's no nothing. So we actually ended up asking them if we could film in their lobby. And <laughs> we rented the studio and we actually just ended up filming in their reception room is the hospital room in the film. Um and then the hallway is just their like hallway in their studio. Um That's but there's just so, so much glass and windows and I was like, we need this. Um and after talking to the production designer and the art director, they both agreed like we need glass windows, we need all this stuff. So um Yeah, we kind of pivoted real quick that day and we're like, all right, well, let's pull all this stuff out of this lobby and let's build a hospital room um, right here in the lobby.
0: Okay, there is one element of futurism that I was really impressed with. Like One of the crossovers that is very similar between Juniper and Ex Machina is working with a small budget to create futurism and it's that you have her vitals and picture projected on the windows and I think it's like a simple mask, right? But that choice like it's something that's not on screen a lot where it's just like uh their address 11 i'm reading it like 11 for chill road right i'm sorry if that's your actual that's not your real no, address. no it's not okay good um <laughs> but that kind of thing like that was subtle and it really impressed me because that's the subtle things that sell you on futurism it's not the like in your face holograms it's the tiny hologram right like the yeah, little absolutely. baby hologram on the on the box and i was like oh mm. delish love it
1: definitely um, yeah i remember in post um you know, we were sitting there, I was, cause we worked with a couple of visual effects people. Um, and after we got all the visual effects, I was looking at the hospital scene and I was like, uh, it just still doesn't look futuristic enough. And I actually reached out to the production designer, Jill Escaro. And I was like, Hey, can you, um, you know, do you have any ideas on this? And she's like, Oh, what if you put some holographic vitals on the wall? And then I reached back out to our VFX person, Adrian Bob and, He's like, yeah, that's totally doable. It's pretty simple. And uh, he put it up and I was like, oh, that's exactly what that scene needed to put Mm -hmm. it in the future.
0: Mm -hmm. You're listening to They Came From Outer Space here on WRILP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. I'm Cameron Kitt here speaking with Nick Rooney and George Martins.
2: Maybe she's pretending to like you. Well, why would she do that? Do you think I might be switched off? It's not up to me. Why is it up to anyone?
0: So yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I would love to talk more about like how lovingly you shot your farm because there were so many little good touches of like when he comes through the door. It makes sense now because you were like prepped with all these shots, right? Like the oh my gosh, the morning shots. <laughs>
1: oh yeah. Oh,
0: I was yeah. like, not. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit about the cinematography of ex machina george would tell me what you think what you thought about this yeah
1: i mean i i love frames and frames um it's like uh, i'm a sucker for that and there's just so many shots just the way that building that he's in has like all these kind of panelings on the wall um and and just the way they shot um a lot of side profile stuff um I just really love that kind of look um so i kind of when i was talking to our cinematographer um i was like listen i really want this to be very still until the climax of the movie um so we shot the whole movie on sticks or on a tripod um just for that kind of still effect um and then with ex machina um, the lighting is just it's incredible Mm -hmm. Um, the way they use the practicals of the house
0: uh-huh. and
1: the natural daylight coming through the, you know, the glass windows.
0: Uh-huh. Um,
1: I just thought it was just so stunning. Uh, and it was just, it was simply shot. There's not a ton of steady cam. There's not a ton of, you know, elaborate shots in the movie. You know, it's, you know, slow dollies and, and stuff like that, but it's not like until she really leaves the house, spoiler alert. Um Probably should have said spoiler alert before.
0: I <laughs> it's okay. It. Spoiler, spoiling is <laughs> rampant in the show. Yeah. The robot gets out, kids. But, um,
1: that shot where she finally gets out and they're tracking behind her, I actually kind of ripped right into my movie when Juniper leaves the farmhouse and is out in the woods, um, kind of running away from everybody. Uh, I've, that- I've
0: heard that that's like a very good thing to do, right? Is It's actually really useful because ripping off a shot right ripping a shot it's never actually ripping off it's still going to be completely unique and unique to you it's going to come off a little different right like there's just naturally going to be a slight change there and generally people are not going to catch that and be like that looks like the similar shot to the ending of X machina right oh, Nobody, yeah. nobody's noticed and in fact it's useful as a touch point right did you did you show some of the stuff to the crew you were working with
1: uh yeah so uh ex machina was in my lookbook. um And so, you know, when I was talking to Josh, our cinematographer, um, you know, like shots, you know, I come from a crew background. I used to be an assistant camera guy. I moved into lighting. So, you know, I have that, you know, very visual sense um, when I direct. I I really like to direct the camera. And, you know, big point was, you know, when motion starts in the movie, I want it to be super epic. Um, So when she's, you know, walking away with the sun in the background, um, you know, I just thought it really told that part of the story. Um, uh, you know, I know a lot of indie filmmakers really like to go crazy with steady cams and make the craziest shots, but if it's not really serving the story, I don't think there's a point to it, if that makes any
0: sense. Mm-hmm. Amen.
1: So, um, yeah, I, I, made a lot of conscious decisions with the cinematography, um, and how I kind of wanted it to be shot.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and then as far as the lighting uh, in in Ex Machina, it's just the way how everything is motivated by stuff in that house was uh, just so cool to watch. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like this artificial thing. It was like every single light was either no. from a panel or... Uh, yeah, and it
2: know. wasn't like, you know, with a lot of sci-fi that's, that's futuristic, you just see like Estera's everywhere. You yeah. Know? Just like, you know, because uh, this is like this is now sci-fi and i could definitely mm-hmm. believe that, that i was there that this was happening right now with the
1: uh yeah it's very believable like yeah you you could believe this happening in yeah. this day and age.
0: That's exactly what Alex Garland said. He's like, I'm writing 10 minutes from now sci-fi because if, the, if tomorrow one of the Google co-founders said they presented us with Ava, we'd all be surprised, but not that surprised. No. Exactly. And no. I was like, oh, because personally I have a lot of feelings about AI and we will talk about that in a minute. But Nick, for those of us who don't work in film, can you tell us why steros, what they are and what the, that oh, would right. symbolize for, for sci-fi film? Like, why does, Why would that be considered a look?
2: Uh, well, I mean, you know, asteras and uh, and quasars are both these kind of you know tube tube like lights that you could just yeah. kind of, like you could throw them anywhere. They're they're very handy. You they know, change
1: colors. They
2: change colors. You control them from a remote. If you uh, sometimes you know yeah. for for some of them, and you know they're really handy, especially for sci fi things, and they look like something like a sci fi prop. Yeah. Like I swear, like you're looking, you're watching like a new Star Trek or something. And there's just some a people even put animals. them
1: right in the shot. They, you can. But
2: they won't even hide them. They They'll won't just even put hide them, them, right
1: in, them right in there.
2: Yeah, it looks like some sort of futuristic bar light that you could just put anywhere.
0: Mm-hmm. You know?
1: mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, they're really handy. Even the lighting inside the robot. I mean, obviously, I was visual. Oh my god! That, but so mm-hmm. true. The, ro- the robot was done so well. And just like the, the brain of the robot and mm-hmm. the way it, glo- uh, you know, it glowed and just her internal organs and, and the blues coming out of that, I, I thought was uh, very visually stunning.
0: Yeah, the, the challenge with the design is that you can be looking like it's a she's a visual Turing test, right? So like you're looking at her seeing through her stomach and still see her as a woman. And Mm -hmm. I thought that was so cool that it's so in your face and it's just the addition of her face, hands and feet that you're like, well, that's a girl. I think also something that really rubbed me, like it made me upset and i'm sure it was intentional I was like why does she have big robot titties like why this like i don't get it like why is that necessary Probably she's a robot
2: why not she was designed exactly know. I know, know like, it's with the character ugh,
0: the patriarchy the patriarchy, the patriarchy oh like I know. Just yeah that. but so, i think like, they did that on purpose everybody
2: loves boops. totally everybody yeah. loves yeah, yeah
0: big robot titties that's what big we need robot um, exactly. Exactly. like mesh mesh robot but then when she puts on a body she puts on a different body did you notice Mm -hmm. that at the end yeah was so fascinating she
2: she got to pick and choose
1: you know Mm i want this one yeah that that part was awesome and like you know you know juniper got cut down a lot but i had a um a scene in the extended cut where like once juniper you know is home and she's safe um you know there's the one short shot of her looking at the dress and then looking at the flower um but that was a much longer sequence where I just wanted to kind of show like Mm -hmm. a clone trying to discover humanity again. Um, So, you know, I, you know, looking back, I wish I established more things in the beginning to make that more effective, I guess. And I think that's why eventually it did get cut because I didn't really establish in the beginning what, because she's, you know, you never meet the actual person. Um, So if there was one thing I would do different, it would, definitely be to establish some of her human traits so that at the end when she's you know in the backstory she was a farmer and she loved gardening and um you know but I wanted to add that kind of human element to the clone Mm
0: -hmm. um but what about moments of humor do you do you feel like there's a laugh anywhere in your film
1: um no yeah, I, it is anymore. not, and you know what? I love comedies too. Uh, <laughs> like, and it's just strange. I mean, I didn't write the film, so.
0: Well, uh, no, no, no. But like, you don't. I don't think there's a hard laugh in Ex Machina either, because the scene that you would think on paper would make you laugh which is just the dance scene, which is, I think, one of my favorite scenes oh, of the last. Oh, night. yeah, it was
1: so
0: good. It's, that was great. He inserted it purely as a tonal spike.
1: Go ahead, dance with it. Come on, buddy. After a long day of touring, tests, you
0: gotta unwind. What did y'all think about that scene when Thanks, you saw that I mean, first time?
2: Girl can dance.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was, that, was yeah.
0: that
1: was a great scene, and I, I do like how it broke up just the seriousness of the whole movie, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and and it added to both, to his character too. It's like this deranged guy and he's just like yeah yeah you know i'm just gonna dance right now yeah, even though definitely i'm creepy. developing these crazy robots mm-hmm. I,
0: I feel like adam's father-in-law kind of serves that like he he comes in and kind of like changes the tone of the film and the conversation that's happening like immediately as soon as he enters them the story and oh, he
1: says that one joke the the manure joke
0: yeah well yeah uh, and like it's it's like he he sets he contextualizes it a lot um, but you know, thinking about Kyoko, what scene did you, first of all did you get? Did you call it with Kyoko the first time you saw it? Did you catch that twist? Big time! You Wait, did that,
1: that she was Did one you know? Did kid? you know
0: she was one of his one of his automatons?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah from the time. very beginning. I at
0: what point? At what point?
2: Like as as soon as she walked in to wake yeah. him up, I
1: was just like, yeah, that's a, that's a, like, like, that's
2: a sex slave robot. I know it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, see, I didn't get the sex slave part, but I I knew that she was a robot because I was well, like, he doesn't allow people here. Why would yeah he exactly? Have some- and you
2: you already oh, kind of so get you, know, you get the kind of guy that uh, that Nathan is. Yeah, you I mean, know, it's just-
0: both she and Sonoya Mizuno, who played Kyoko, and Alicia Vikander, they're both um, trained ballet dancers, and so he picked them specifically for their ability to have extreme control over their physicality. And mm-hmm. I think that plays such a huge part in you reading them as robots because as soon as you see Sonoya as, as Kyoko, like, I don't know if you guys know this, but ballet dancers ha- are like considered the fittest people on earth, like overall. Yeah, others I like, do know that. They have the most muscular, Like and so their ability to like just do like a very slight tilt of the head, that's something that I think really separates them from other robot films is that like, I just utterly believed her because of her movements.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. That's very interesting because the... The clone in my movie Mandy, she's a dancer too, and I thought—oh no way! Yeah, and I thought she did a stunning job of kind of feeling almost like a robot, um, and just just the way her facial expressions weren't too animated, and it, it felt like she was new to this world, kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I thought my, she did an incredible job with that.
0: You know, clones and robots are different. They have di- clone is like giant baby, right? That's her. Yeah. my favorite scene with her is when she wakes up that first morning. I thought that was very good. She was giving me baby, you know, like she was delighted to be in existence. And that's a really hard thing to do, because what are you drawing on? Like, you don't have memories of that.
1: That was tough for me. Like, it's you know, I had to figure out in my head, at least, like, does she have any memories? Like, obviously, she talks in the movie. um, And and those were choices I had to kind of figure out on the fly was like, um, you know, if am I not going to have her talk the whole movie because then, you know, she talks in the script. So, um, and I, so I had to really figure out and what I told Mandy was like, you know, pretend you have annesia amnesia and like things are slowly coming back to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of how I directed her as far as being a clone. And, um, you know, you're sort of starting to remember some memories, but, um, things are very new to you.
0: Mm. Yeah, that sense of discovery.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, fun fact: Alicia Vikander's husband is Michael Fassbender, who played David in Prometheus and Alien Covenant. And oh. I thought, I thought he was really good in those. Personally, I thought he was really good in Covenant. He was very believable as like scary robot man. Um, yeah, so they probably they probably have like Robo offs at home, right? <laughs> <I> yeah. Would <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, I do, do. yeah, we used to do that.
2: Yeah, we did yeah. <laughs> so, dancing competitions.
0: I want to talk about AI real quick. Um, my first interaction with AI was AOL chatbots when I was too young to be on the internet. Do you guys remember those? The ones oh, yeah. that you would try and trick into- Smarter,
1: smarter child?
0: Smarter yeah. child, yeah. Gosh. So so that, you know, that was my first kind of touch, but um, I have this kind of obsession with AI as being a more urgent issue than global warming. And none of my friends really are with me on that. Where would you guys rate your fear scale of AI on a 1 to 10?
2: Ooh, solid 11.
1: Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a serious thing. And
0: mm-hmm. I don't
1: think people have really caught up to it, but like the fact that Tesla is working on Neuralink, which is mm-hmm. this computer that is being implanted in people's brains and you know, just the things he's been saying about it are just really freaky. And he's even freaked out himself about it, which is like really scary when the person who's making it is kind of freaked out. Um, so yeah, I think it's, uh, and you know, there are top scientists that have talked about AI being a problem. Mm -hmm. Um,
2: like I mean, and they've been talking about
1: it forever. Like, oh yeah, like in the movies.
2: Yeah, in the movies, and like you know, you got like Asimov's laws, which are from like the fifties at least. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like people have known this was coming for a long time. But, but we aren't here.
0: instituting those laws. Like
2: this no. is what drives me nuts. It's
0: like it's the race. This is like this is why movies are so important to me. Is that this movie is a is a warning, which is that what what nathan says so casually is like well if someone was going to do it it might as well be me with like right. the casual nature with which he approaches it is why the metaphor of the house to me the house is the security which is the flimsy attempt for humanity to put in a box the intelligence that it has created that is smarter than itself right mm-hmm, and i right. adore the use of the mary in the box and the color uh, mary the like thought experiment about color i thought that was so strong but you know the fear around ai is around what happens when they grow beyond us and the potential for control and i'm reading mm-hmm. this book by stuart russell called human compatible and the, the byline is ai and the problem of control and the basic problem is that one of the lines in his book is that there is no algorithm that exists today that knows people don't like to be killed and like i think we can assume ava knows that people don't like to be killed right we can assume
2: that like every living thing has that base instinct mm-hmm. you know to. To stay alive. You know, that's sort of the reason that everybody does
1: anything. Now, do any we think design. though that AI could actually become fully conscious, like and have conscious thought? Or are they just really smart? you know computers mm-hmm.
0: that's the question that this whole movie poses right yeah. is is she conscious and what is consciousness and that's why I love it is because it's open-ended and you can discuss it right like how do you define consciousness I like that he creates a brain a wet and goes into wetware I thought that was kind of hot like
1: yeah that was cool. I love yeah.
0: that that futurism was really appealing to me um, but also so scary <laughs> like
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah no, it was cool
0: well yeah so George how I do mean, you define consciousness bro
1: Oh, well, that's a loaded question. Um,
0: I don't know. Yeah, I don't want to be like, here, hit this, man. How do you define consciousness? Me, uh, well,
1: I, I actually don't, you know, my fear around AI is just the, the sheer intelligence that it could have, but I actually don't believe AI could become fully conscious. I think it's a more of a soul thing, if that makes any sense, that yeah. like we don't yeah. know much about like more metaphysical, spiritual stuff. Um, that we don't really have a, a full grasp on. But I do think that they could appear very conscious and trick us to a very uh, convincible degree.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, like, if you if you have some sort of self-preservation, you know, I, I would definitely call that conscious, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. true. And then, like, in this movie, you know, Ava's, you kind of find out at the end that she's been plotting this since day one to kind of you know, stay alive, you know, and, get so away, have get
0: and Jasmine and all the other women that he made, right? All mm-hmm. the other robots. Yeah. Right? It's we're so quick to gender them and then instantly like, give them a lot more um, anthropomorphization. But all the other uh, robots that he made had the same reaction, which is let me out.
1: Yeah, yeah, even at a lower, um, like version level, which yeah. I was talking to Nick before we jumped on here was like, The one thing that like kind of threw me off was was Kyoko. Is that the. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kyoko, like her character, you know, when, when I first saw her in the movie, I was like, Oh, this is like some low level robot. That's his maid or his assistant or whatever. Um, And then when you find out at the end that she also wants to escape as well, it's like at what version did they, you know, gain this ability to want to escape. Or is it in all the versions? They don't really explain that. But I think it's in every it version,
0: right? So he opens up, there's a scene, the climactic scene, where he opens up all the files in the deus ex a right, folder. Right. And all of the women are asking in some way, why Why won't you let me out? And we don't see all of the women talk, but there's a woman who is banging on the door so much that her arms break into Ooh. cables and wires, right? So like you're led to the conclusion that he's just been trying to control the urge from day one that is the problem in his machine, Right. Mm-hmm. Like that he's right. been trying to suppress that need, um, and then you you see him as such a villain because he's keeping these poor women inside, and it's so easy to forget that they're literally just programmed. Uh, that's what makes the movie so good. I love it so totally much.
2: free. And then like when um when Caleb walks into the room for the first time, the glass is still cracked. Like before he ever oh. talks to Ava, he oh sees, I didn't notice that. I noticed that wow. the second time around when I watched really? the movie. One of those things that makes the second time even better than the first, you know. Oh, that's but, interesting. Um, yeah, so he, like, he sees the glasses cracked and hasn't even seen this robot yet. And then uh, you could imagine that kind of has some sort of fear behind it, you know, that he's talk- about to talk to an AI who, you know, punches bulletproof glass, I'm sure. Yeah, that's you know? uh,
0: terrifying. But she wears like lavender uh little sweaters and like soft summer dresses so she's still
2: terrifying oh she knows
0: oh man and then i mean there's like this whole thing i highly recommend reading the script because it does give you more of an insight into alex garland's approach to the screenwriting and like what motivated some of his shots and stuff um but first i want to remind everyone that you are listening to wrilp 97.3 fm richmond independent radio i am cameron kit here with George Martins and Nick Rooney talking about Ex Machina.
2: One day the AIs are going to look back on us the same way we look at fossil skeletons in the plains of Africa. An upright ape living in dust with crude language and tools, all set for extinction.
0: Okay, so something I'd like to bring up is a really interesting point, something I'm pretty passionate about, which is about democracy in filmmaking versus kind of top down or as as alex garland calls it fascism in filmmaking um he this was his this was his debut as a director after being a writer for many many years and he's worked with a lot of people and he expounded for many minutes in an interview i watched that he doesn't attach a huge importance to directing and he doesn't buy into the pyramid structure and that filmmaking is really a group of filmmakers and that he was totally calm on set because he was working with people that he knew Um, you know, I'd love to hear how you respond to that.
1: Um, I think, I don't know. I, I see filmmaking as like, you know, there's so many different jobs on set that if everyone is doing sort of like their job as best as they can, you're going to make the best movie that you can do. I'm, I'm like sort of a big collaborator. So like, I'll ask people like what their opinion on certain things are. But I think when you're actually shooting a movie and you're constrained to time limits and location moves and, you know, all this stuff that it's really important that everyone's on the same page before you go in Mm -hmm. to shoot something. And like, you know, I didn't have the luxury of having rehearsals, which, you know, you know, it's a small budget movie. We were kind of scrambling to get stuff done. And so, you know, that was a big hindrance, even though, you know, I was generally happy with, you know, most of the acting on, um the movie um you know i think going in to production when you're actually shooting knowing what you want to do um it's really important that you're not that you don't have questions and you're not trying to figure out a ton of stuff on set um but beforehand like the collaboration is so important Mm
2: -hmm. well i kind of feel like um you know especially even with this movie and then Annihilation also like had a lot of the same people working on it that he, you know, you, you assemble a crew of people that you like and yeah. then, you know, you know, they're, they're good at their jobs and you respect what they do. And it kind of comes, becomes like a formula for like a good movie. With, oh, like, absolutely. Like having a, like having every person firm. on my
1: movie I've worked with before or mostly every person. And, um, you know, it comes down to trust. You know, like you don't want to micromanage your cinematographer and be like, "Oh no, no, move the camera like five inches this way," or, or you know, yeah. I want to do it like this. If the cinematographer is like really dead set on a certain shot, which would happen all the time on Juniper, like Josh would say, "No, no, no I'd, I'd rather shoot it from this angle." You know, he's the professional. I'm not a professional cinematographer, so I'd be like, "You know what? You're right. So let's let's do it from this shot." But there was a few times where I would say, "No, no, no," like this is important to the story. And I really want to shoot -hmm. it this way. So um, yeah, I I think it's just about having good communication on set. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I don't think that it's like, you know, it should be this big hodgepodge where like, you know, you have a PA up, come up to you and say, hey, like, I think this shot would be great this way, where it's just like, you know, your job is not really to... (laughs) You know. Yeah, You
0: know, that's interesting. I did. I did. So when I shot chlorine, which I shot a year ago here in New York, I did have to say, like, if you have an idea, bring it to this department head and then they'll bring it to me, which felt bad. But I see the job of the director to be more like a manager. Right. Your job is to support everybody else to do a, as best as a job as possible and all play the same song. Right. So if all of them need to be excited, like your DP is likely going to do a better job if he can set up the shots that he think is going to really tell the story. So find a way to get both of the shots you want in a short amount of time it's it's i just think um i just think it's really refreshing to hear somebody like actively not buying into the auteur theory that we tend to assume that every good thing that came out of this film came directly from alex garland when in fact it came from you know his incredible crew and nick i'd just love to hear like having worked on a bunch of sets you know you mentioned like you didn't even get credit for the thing that you were on like what was like what do you prefer when you work with directors and what have you seen that you think works
2: I mean, I kind of, I like to see the director mo- work mostly with the talent, you know, is yeah, like mostly I what I see the director's job as being, you know, and on that particular thing, I, I was talent, you know, I never asked to be, I was asked to be, you know. But <laughs> yeah,
1: and, and kind of going back to your point about the director being the manager, I actually think the manager is the assistant director. And I think like, and this is overlooked by a lot of you know, student filmmakers, and you need a really good ad because the ad is gonna whip, whip everyone
0: up. into to line, yeah, on I, time. at exactly. everybody.
1: I think if the director can be in a creative bubble, and obviously, you know, like this is like one of my first films that you know I did with you know a big camera budget and you know, uh, you know, big crew, and not that it's big relative to big movies, but as far as what I've been working on and. You know, you have to make so many more decisions that, than you think as a director. Like wardrobe was coming up to me. Do you like this shirt or this shirt? And I was like, I don't know. I, I
0: yeah. If you, and- if you trust somebody you should support and they know your vision, they should be able to make those decisions. Yeah, I mean, That's if, how you make a good movie, right? As you say, listen, I trust you. Here's what we're doing. We're making a movie about this. You come up with the best thing, right? Yeah, and, and if
1: then- AD can really like keep... The schedule going it allows the director to be way more creative mm-hmm. and and work with the talent like Nick yeah. was saying because um, that's really important. I think that like directors, first time directors can and I, even myself can get wrapped up in a lot of small details that really yeah. sh- they shouldn't you be know, looking on at on
2: these low budget things. You know, then like you know the director might be talking to the gaffer about where to put. Oh like yeah, the, definitely. You know, definitely something like that. But uh, you know, he shouldn't have to. You yeah. Know, but also in an ideal
1: world. And back to your point, like, I think there is, you know, there has been times where I've been on set where like the gaffer will come up with something that is not even related to lighting. That is an incredible idea that they'll just go with and like, it'll come out incredible. And even when I was kind of lower level, um, you know, I would always go up and be like, Hey, like, it might, I actually remember I worked on this short film and I think I was just, I was an assistant cameraman and it was like at a park bench and I saw all these birds like off in the distance. And like, I was like, Hey, do you think it'd be cool if I threw some bread? And then when the guy runs up, all these birds fly over everywhere. And the director was like, yeah, that, that might be cool. So I just threw a bunch of bread <laughs> and the shot came out. Awesome. Like the birds flew up and You know, it was his openness to hear me out on something that was totally out of my department. Um, But yeah, I think that if it's done in the right way, where it's not disruptive to the workflow of of the day, that that's totally a, a good thing.
0: I mean, the thing that Alex Garland had was complete control over the story, right? Like He knew his story front to back because he wrote it. And so he was coming into this, I think, with a lot of strength because he had a lot of it already ready to go right he had written it it came into his mind and he had a a huge crew of trusted people who were his collaborators to work on it with them I think it's just it's a stunning achievement and I'm so glad that they got the Oscar for visual effects especially over everything else and one of the notes on IMDb one of the kind of trivia pieces was it was considered the reason that it's widely attributed for getting that Oscar for visual effects is because it's considered um, actor-driven VFX Right, that they were all in the in the service of the acting of the story, right. and that they weren't in there just to be big, you right. know, honking set pieces. And I think that that comes back to what you were saying before, George, about shots, which is that everything came down to the tension that was created before, between these four characters, and everything that through the that might have distracted from that tension is removed. So it's very mm-hmm. clean and just uh, it's fun to watch, even though it's scary. It really is.
1: Yeah, totally. Actually, fun fact. Um, my producer on juniper actually worked for scott rudin um, who actually was the executive producer of x-mac. Wow. Yeah, which I didn't really put together until I looked looked at imdb. I was just like looking at the crew and I was like, "Oh, wait. That's that's an interesting uh, fun yeah. fact."
2: That's so is awesome. it, Isn't this world so so small? It's a small world.
1: Really especially the film world.
0: Uh, yeah. What about the sci-fi film world?
1: Oh, it's even smaller. Oh, yeah. I mean, you find like when once people get hooked into sci-fi, like as far as filmmaking goes, like they're hooked. Like, um, (laughs) yeah, my producer, uh, Zeus, he loves producing sci-fi films and like the visual effects artist, Adrian, created this fully animated um, VFX movie, which is like, I can't believe the amount of work that these VFX guys go through. Mm-hmm. I mean, even my movie, which just had a couple of holograms and like very minimal effects, still took a good amount of time. So I can only imagine if you're doing like a full fledged sci fi, what that, the patience it takes. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, it's all I watch at home. So, you know, I might as well, you know, try to make some too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They're just so expensive yeah
0: yeah that's the problem is figuring out i think what i really appreciate is the minimalism that gets across the story because this is something that i care about i think i think it's important for reasons that i think black mirror as a show is important is that we need to have these discussions as a society and decide how we feel about things and that that influences the technology the technological steps that we take as a group right whether or not we Mm -hmm. choose to decide to share privacy right he i think a big undercurrent of this is that the reason he was able to create ava is because he just took all of the quote blue book which is standard for google data and hacked everyone's cell phones and 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 oscar isaac said what's funny is that you take for granted that that would never happen when in fact it's already happening right and he had written this before the nsa leaks came out um i thought that was pretty clever oh yeah
2: And, and you know there's um there's books about this whole thing happening, like coming out all the time. Not everybody reads those books, but you know, the people who are making those movies read those books for you. to, to tell oh, you absolutely. that, you know, which is kind and of it's cool funny. Like, them.
1: cause after he says that he hacked blue book, they're like, well, why didn't, you know, you get caught? It's cause everyone else is doing it, which is a true thing. Like, Oh yeah. The social dilemma came out on Netflix, which I watched a little mm-hmm. bit of and mm-hmm. I work in tech. So it wasn't like super surprising to me. Cause like, I've worked for apps and I, I've mm-hmm. you know, worked in tech my whole life. So, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But it, it is a little freaky to know that like data is just being mined and sold. And it's like this black market kind of thing going on. And if AI gets a hold of that and is not capped or, you know, limited in any way, you know, you could see AI becoming smarter than your average human.
0: It's not what people think, it's how people think. Well, you guys, with that, I'd like to wrap up. Thank you both so much for coming on. Uh, You've been listening to They Came From Outer Space here on WIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. George and Nick, thank you.
1: Hey, thank Thank you. you. Thanks for having us.